2: Hi, everybody, welcome to the Third Coast podcast. I'm Katie Mingle, the producer of Resound. Before we get into the show, a quick invite. Some of you know that we recently put out a call for professionals and newbies alike to go out and make short radio stories as part of our 2012 Short Docs Challenge. Well, on Tuesday evening, July 10th, we invite you to join us at the Hideout as we unveil the winners. Plus, a selection of local submissions. For more details, visit our website, ThirdCoastFestival.org. Hope to see you there. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival
3: in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound.
4: So, Dean and I raced on to the East Coast, beating hotshot passenger trains and steel wheel freights.
5: There were hobos by the tracks, wino bottles, the moon shining on wood fires. There were white-faced cows out in the plains, dim as nuns.
3: ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio ramblings from all over this land. On the air, on the web, we wander the world searching for stories and bring back the best of what we hear each week on ReSound.
5: There was dawn, I away. Mississippi River at Davenport, Chicago by nightfall.
6: Where are you going with your yaks today?
7: Wherever they're going the next place, I hope it's not the same as this. I hope it's a little better. But I always tell them, good luck. Good luck, that's all I say.
3: Movement feels good. There's nothing worse than feeling stuck, stagnant, status quo, Yuck. Changing venue means changing perspective, and changing perspective makes you feel like you're striving, experiencing, living. This week, we're on the move from the highest freshwater lake in the world to one of the lowest spots on the Bowery. We bring you stories of nomadic cultures, peoples, and spirits. Stay tuned. There's a certain romance associated with living on the move. It's a life which, on the surface, feels full of adventure and freedom but the nomadic lifestyle can also be lonely and difficult. Scott Carrier found wanderers of all kinds when he set off on a 32-mile trek around the base of Mount Kailash in the Himalayas of Tibet. To set foot on the slope of the mountain is considered a dire sin, but circumnavigating it is a holy ritual that's supposed to bring good fortune. Scott's story is called Circling the Center of Creation.
6: At 15,000 feet above sea level, Lake Mansurorvar in western Tibet is the highest freshwater lake in the world. In mid-afternoon, it's exceedingly bright, and there are no trees, so the only way to escape the sun is by closing your eyes, and even then, you can still see. The name Mansurorvar means consciousness lake, as Hindus believe it to be a manifestation of the mind of Brahma, the creator of the universe. The water is dark blue, black in places where wind is skimming over the surface. The sky is also dark blue, nearly black. Hindus also believe that anyone who goes swimming in this lake will have all his sins or her sins erased. But I tried it already, and I don't think it worked. This morning I got up early, went for a walk, and saw some nomads who'd spent the night beside the lake. They were an extended family, with grandparents and babies. Pilgrims from some other part of Tibet come to walk around the sacred mountain, Mount Kailash, just ten miles to the north. The sun had come up, but was buried behind heavy clouds, and there were three inches of new snow on the hills above the lake. It was cold and I was watching the nomads take down their canvas tents. They pulled the stakes, took out the center and corner poles, and tossed the canvas in the back of the Chinese cargo truck they were all traveling in. And then there was nothing left to pick up or put away. They had no stuff, no gear. They'd slept in their long coats or chupas on the bare ground, and their chupas were filthy with dirt and grease, as were their hands and faces. They looked like homeless people, but they've lived here for thousands of years. My friend Lisa has a video camera and she's taping these kids with the screen turned around so they can see themselves. We're in Darchen, the village at the southern base of Mount Kailash where you start walking the kora, or circuit, around the mountain. The houses are made of adobe bricks that are the same color as the road. They have low, flat roofs made from wooden beams imported from Nepal. Inside, they lay sheets of linoleum over compressed dirt floors and cook on sheet metal stoves that burn chunks of dried yak dung. motorcycles going by are all Chinese four-strokes with roll bars and wind fairings and mud flaps, fake snow leopard skin seats decorated with flying tassels and painted with eternal knots, swastikas, lotus blossoms and flames. The riders are young men with yak-bone berets in their hair, wearing leopard skin cowboy hats, red vests, turquoise necklaces. They look like mock gauchos, but they're yak herders, yak boys, come to town on their ponies. In the middle of town, there's a row of shops where you can buy last minute items for the hike barley flour or sampa, Snickers bars, beer, cigarettes, pots and pans. In front of the shops, out in the open air, there are a couple of pool tables, one with a four year old girl up on top, dancing and dropping balls while her friends shoot around her. We begin the Korra, the pilgrim's path, clockwise around the mountain, falling in on the trail with some nomads, 25 yaks, and a few horses. Some of the yaks wear prayer flags and have ribbons braided into their hair. Others carry loads. One girl has a white lambskin hat shaped like a tall coffee cup and a white coat with bells on the fringes. This man has an amulet around his neck and a long knife around his waist. I ask him a question through our guide and he looks at me like I'm a talking shoe. Where
8: are you going with your yaks today?
6: He says they're from down by the lake and they're walking around the mountain practicing their religion just like they always do and always have done. Then he stoops down and picks up a dried yak dung off the trail and puts it inside his coat or chupa. You couldn't live here without yak dung. You'd freeze and starve to death. ¶¶ I can see the trail going up the canyon maybe two miles ahead of me and also two miles looking back from where we came. The canyon is a half pipe, a mile wide and a half mile high. The people spread out along the trail look like little beetles, maybe 80 to 100 in all. I guess that half are foreigners from Europe, Japan, India, the other half are Tibetan nomads.
9: So where are you from?
6: This man, Zeyan Dorji, is a nomad from Nabri, 400 miles to the east. He says he came here in the back of a cargo truck with his wife and children and grandchildren, 11 in all. Why did you want to come here? Why did you want to come to Mount
8: Kailash?
6: They came to purify negative karma by praying for all sentient beings under the six realms of existence. And uh, how's it going? How are how is your trip going so far? He says, basically, I'm sixty one years old, and it's pretty hard. Maybe because I have bad karma from killing so many animals in my lifetime. Do you think that your life will be different after you complete this trip? You think you will change? No, he says, this is not for this lifetime. This lifetime, I'm a poor nomad. But if I purify my karma, then maybe in the next lifetime, I won't have to be mean to animals. This is not for now, but when I die, it will help. Most of the foreigners walking around the mountain have hired porters to carry their backpacks. At $10 a day, it's a good deal, considering the elevation and the
9: distance. You see these prayer flags here? This is a... But
6: this man, Paul Garden from Norfolk in England, is carrying his own load, which only amounts to some food and a sweater stuffed inside a Tibetan chupa. This is his eighth time around the mountain.
9: I, I yeah, but the, the tradition the tradition is to do it thirteen times. Oh. So this is the goal. It's taking me two days, each trip, huh. to get around. Uh, once I did it in one day, and but I think once was enough. Huh. Yes, there was a bit of a Forrest Gump day. <laughs> I just couldn't stop. Uh, I was full of full of adrenaline or something. Yeah. It's like I can walk for for hours on end and I'm only really present to the the silence here you must have noticed the profound silence in this place um and yeah it's it's like walking through a dream here I I've studied yoga in India for years I'm kind of drawn that way anyway huh. so is this
6: like yoga is walking around during yes the court? exactly how is it like yoga
9: well, yoga is uh, the union of the mind and body uh, in order to experience the soul that 's the true definition of the word union you know is you find a rhythm with the walking and the breathing and the, uh, the sort of aware of the silence and uh, initially you feel the energy raise from the bottom coming up and uh, yeah, you know, for me, it's it's settled in my, uh, you know, the the between the solar plexus and my heart chakra, as I'm walking. Yes. Is that good? Is that where you want it? Um, it's not a case really of what I want. You just uh, be aware of what what happens. And uh, but I'm very happy with what's going on. Yes, over the moon, as we say in England. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
6: This sound could be a yak dung fire inside a stove or rain falling on a roof but it's the wind ripping through a thousand prayer flags on the north side of the mountain I look up and see the full-on north face and the summit, less than two miles away, a mile above my head. Only two people are said to have been on top, Buddha and the Buddhist Saint Milarepa, but they didn't climb up. Buddha flew as a black-necked crane, and Milarepa rode on the first rays of the morning sun. This is supposed to be the most powerful spot on the circuit around the mountain. It's said that from here, The gods and spirits are so close they can hear your prayers, and as you make a wish, they'll do everything they can to make it come true. I wish for more oxygen. At 17,000 feet, my cells are getting only half what they get at sea level, and they don't like it. Everything's supposed to be coming together at this point, but I have a headache between my eyes. At night we sleep, or try to sleep, in a two-man tent below the mountain. I somehow lost our water filter, so we have less than a quart between the two of us, and I didn't eat very much for dinner, and my sleeping bag is basically a nylon sack with a little bit of down, perfect for summer nights in the Utah desert, but it's not working at 17,000 feet. Every time I fall asleep, I dream I'm suffocating and wake up gasping for air. Then I have to struggle and concentrate on each and every breath, inhaling, exhaling, until I relax and go back to sleep, only to dream I'm suffocating and wake up gasping for air. So I get up and go for a walk. The tent is covered with frost. The air bites my teeth. I look up at the sky and am immediately attacked by infinity. The Milky Way is a thick, white blanket that offers absolutely no warmth. The moon coming up over the mountains to the east is only a sliver, the thinnest excuse for a moon imaginable. The stars are needles in my eyes, and the mountain is luminescent and looming against the darkness. I walk over to the stream to get some water, but the water has frozen like clear, hard muscle stretching over rocks. I feel like the mountain has its foot on my chest and is trying to kill me. Which is somehow a relief. Once I realize this, I feel much better. I walk back to the tent, eat a Snickers bar, and go to sleep. In the morning, we begin the hardest part of the walk around the mountain, the trip up and over the Domala Pass at close to 19,000 feet above sea level. On the trail, there are four Tibetan pilgrims, three men and a woman, prostrating themselves around the mountain. They have aprons of carpet hanging over their chupas and Chinese house slippers on their hands. They stand with their hands or slippers clasped at the forehead then at the throat, then at the heart, praying for refuge. Then they bend down and slide their slippers out in front of them along the ground until they're lying flat out and they pray again. Then they get up, step one body length forward and pray again. It will take them six or seven days to go around the mountain this way. And they have no sleeping bags or water bottles, not even any food that I can see. People have been coming here, doing this for thousands of years. The top of Domla Pass is shaped like a smooth saddle, but it feels like a bone, maybe a skull cap, or maybe it just feels like death. The pass is close to 19,000 feet above sea level, a rocky and barren form planet. And in the distance there are mountains, after mountains, after mountains, and all the space in between. The more I look, the more I disappear. <laughs> Cheyenne Dorje, the 61-year-old man I met yesterday, has made it to the pass with his extended family. He's climbing up on top of a big boulder that's like a symbolic horse. His grandson is helping him, and the women are offering advice and criticism. He gets up on top, throws a leg over the ridgeline like he's sitting in a saddle, and bends down to touch the rock with his lips. <laughs> This stream comes from a glacier on the east side of the mountain. From here the water runs down the canyon into Lake Mansurvar, then south across the Tibetan plateau as the Sutlej River, down through the Himalayas, across the Punjab, emptying into the Arabian Sea. Then it will come back as clouds and fall as snow and freeze into ice that will eventually melt and run into this stream, a circle. Eighty miles to the west, there are streams like this one that become the Indus River. A hundred miles to the south, there are streams like this that flow into the Ganges. And sixty miles to the east are the headwaters of the Brahmaputra. These four rivers drain the Indian subcontinent. And in this way, this mountain is like a heart, and the rivers and clouds are like blood vessels, a circulatory system. Chinese scientists now say the glaciers in Tibet are melting at a rate of 50% every 10 years, which means that in 40 or 50 years, the circulatory system is going to disappear. From here, it's the long run-out back to civilization. We'll follow the stream down the canyon, then get in our rented Land Cruiser and drive four days east across Tibet, then south through the Himalayas, back to Kathmandu. Back to traffic jams, dirty air, lots of problems and worry. The trick is going to be taking the mountain back with me, to not let it disappear. So I can stand there in the middle of the worry and feel the mountain like a foot on my chest.
3: Circling the Center of Creation was produced by Scott Carrier for Atlantic Public Media as part of their series, Stories from the Heart of the Land. Another fun fact, while the Buddhists and Hindus walk clockwise around the mountain, the followers of the Jain and Bon religions walk counterclockwise. And so the great world spins.
9: Hello, you're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and I'm Alan Hall of Falling Tree Productions. We're based in London, England, but routinely keep in touch with adventures in radio from all over the world through Third Coast. For more radio features and docs that you'll struggle to hear anywhere else, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. While you're there, subscribe to get a new radio doc delivered to your inbox twice a month. Find out about live listening events around town and learn how to support this one-of-a-kind radio festival visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Thank you.
10: Hear that click of the rails? To a railroader, that's the same music as a hush in the theatre to an actor before the footlights come up. The click of the wheels on the rails gets into your blood.
3: There is perhaps nothing more iconic of the nomadic life than the rattling racket of the freight train. The advent of the steam engine drove not only commerce and transportation in this country, it cracked open a world of possibility to the hobos and stowaways who wanted to travel to distant towns and unknown destinations. And while even the word hobo conjures up sepia-toned images of wayward travelers from another era, think Woody Guthrie, our next piece proves that the hobo lifestyle is still alive and relatively well.
1: I used to live over by the steel mill. The trains used to come through. They would always come by us about three times a day. And all the kids in the neighborhood would run down to the railroad tracks. The older kids would jump on the ladders and see if they could make it across the trestle. We used to play down at the tracks and uh, everybody's parents had pack of lies about hobos. Hobos would cut your throat if you walked down the railroad tracks, but I I didn't believe any of it ever. In my mind, I I thought hobos were cowboys that were too poor to afford horses, and uh, I wanted to be a cowboy when I was a kid. Later on, you know, I didn't think about it so much until I moved out to Baltimore to go to school out there. And then I started thinking about it again because I couldn't get along in that type of an environment. And uh, one day, I just got on the train and rode it. About a minute into the trip, it started going into this tunnel. It was so black inside the tunnel, I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. It was kind of scary for my first trip. The diesel smoke started picking up real heavy. I couldn't breathe. And I, I didn't know about putting water on your rag or anything and trying to breathe through that. But what happened was, was when I got to the destination I was going to, I mean, I was dirty from going through the tunnel. I almost felt like I was gonna die in the tunnel. I had nothing more than a sweatshirt and this was winter time. So I never really slept outside and I had to sleep inside of a dumpster that night just to keep warm, the uh, paper shreds in the dumpster. At that time, it was a way out. I just wanted to go find something else, something better. I dropped out of school about three days later after I jumped that train. Told the president of the art school that I wanted to be a hobo. And I learned more in one week out on the tracks than I learned in a year in school. I didn't want to go alone. It was pretty scary going alone. So I got one of my buddies and he was real interested in it. We just knew that we were going to ride trains, go from town to town, and we were going to be hobos. So we waited at the crew change point. The train coming through was a night train, and we got on it. We got dumped off in Decatur, Illinois. Uh, So we just got out and decided we're going to walk to town. Uh, We we were too stupid to just stay on the train and, and wait. We walked all day long, and it's just a big industrial town. I mean, factories everywhere. And then we we spent about a week in that town, stuck there. We got out of there and ended up in Kansas City. This Earth First activist told us where to find work. So we searched out this lady, and she farms alligators outside of downtown. She's got about 27 alligators and crocodiles living inside of her house and outside. So we worked there for a couple days. In Denver, Colorado, we were in the hobo camp there. We had a couple cans of beans, me and my buddy, and that was our meal for the day. I decided I was gonna cook my can of beans like the hobos cooked theirs. I threw my can of beans in the fire, got my buddy to throw his in too. About five minutes later, we heard a little ticking sound. All of a sudden, it blew up like a pipe bomb. The whole campfire got blown out. We had beans all over us. These guys had beans all over them, these other two old hobos. So we got thrown out of the camp. They told us we couldn't even sleep there that night. They wanted us out. I know I had a whole pack of D batteries. For some reason, I decided to carry a flashlight that took D batteries. I had tapes, Walkman, just the most unnecessary things you could think of and maybe about one pair of clothes. We we decided we're not going to change our clothes, we'll bring all this other useless stuff instead. Now I carry a sleeping bag, I keep some train maps inside of that, some socks and just some basic stuff, toothbrush and water. Every time I get on, I mean, I know in the back of my mind, well, I could go to jail out of it. Especially since I got put on probation, that's one story. I mean, when the engineer came back and seen us, he was so mad, he tried to hit us with rocks. You know, he questioned us up and down, why we were on his train, why we want to do something that's so dirty and nasty. He told us that the sheriff was coming, and so we took off running to hide from the police. But uh, actually they treated us real nice for some reason and let us ride in the front of the police car, gave us double portions on our meal, gave us birthday cake. I requested Johnny Cash and they, they wouldn't come through on that one, but uh, that was a, a good adventure. I've seen some really sad stuff happen. On that first trip in Denver, Colorado, one kid came in with another girl and uh, they all rode in on the train. The younger kid got picked up, he was a runaway. Then the other guy, he got stabbed in the leg and then got half of his ear bit off. So we had to push him around in a shopping cart. They, they almost had to take his leg off because he got stabbed with a rusty knife. Then the girl that they were with got raped by four guys in an alley. So, I mean, there's some hard stuff that happens out on the street at night. Well, the townspeople don't want you in their town. I mean they look at you as a bum no matter what. You're a drug addict. The way they ignore you when you speak to them. I mean even if you just ask some people what time it is, they'll keep on walking like you don't exist. You just walk into a store and people automatically think you're a thief. I don't even walk into stores anymore. It's like, uh, you don't have a place. Wherever you go you don't have a place anywhere. The easiest way out of everything is just to jump on the train and go. And when I get to where I'm going, I'm let down. It's like I get hopes up for some time, and then once I get there, the mystery's gone, so I want to keep going again. I meet tramps, they'll tell me the same story. They just keep going and going, and it's a bad cycle to get into. I guess, you know, you can travel the whole country searching for answers, and go to every state, but sometimes I guess you might find them on your own doorstep where you left, you know? I mean, home or going back and seeing my family is always usually the best thing to do. And going out on trips and being a hobo, I mean, it's a good adventure and all, but I I know it's not something I want to do forever. I, I don't regret it at all, but I think it's just probably got to come to its end for me.
3: That was Hobo Confessions, produced by Ben Adair.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
11: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash
3: style. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Drop us an email and tell us what you think of the show. Send it to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org.
11: Go to sleep, you weary hobo, let the towns drift slowly by.
3: Listen to the steel rails humming, that's a hobo's lullaby. Even lifelong nomads sometimes have to settle down and rest for a while. For many years, New York's wayward travelers ended up in the flop houses of the Bowery. These hotels, offering a tiny space for a tiny sum, were nightly and sometimes semi-permanent residences for men down on their luck. In 1998, David Isay and Stacey Abramson obtained unprecedented 24-hour access to one of the last surviving flop houses of New York's Bowery, the Sunshine Hotel. Welcome. Come
7: on in. If you got the rent money, you can stay. If you ain't beat it, <laughs> this is an eat it and beat it hotel. Normally, people come in, they stay for a day or two and get out. But for some reason or another, people come in and they like to stay for a year, for two years. You know, in other words, they like to give you aggravations. If you if you like aggravations, come to the Sunshine Hotel. It's a lovely place.
8: Yeah, I didn't like the fleas in the bed. Yeah, I had fleas. I scratched all night the whole time I was here. Yeah, roaches on the wall. I mean, it's I a nice place now? if you're
7: short of funds and uh, you need to lay your head down uh, for a couple of hours. We hope to make your stay pleasant. But don't ask me for towels or soap. We don't have it. <laughs> We do not have those luxuries.
8: You want a CID um, of any kind? I uh, know. I believe you.
7: I mean, this is uh, the kind of hotel where everybody gives an AKA. <laughs> You're welcome to a room for a very nominal fee. Okay, here are, my friend. You're okay. all set. Thanks a lot, buddy. Okay, you can square yourself away. This, that, and the other. This is the last of the last. Well, welcome to the Sunshine Hotel. Thanks a lot. Yeah. The last, you, of, the last you, of the last. I'm Henry, buddy. by the way. Henry. Yeah. and Nathan. How you doing, my friend? Please meet. Okay. What's up, God? What's happening? All right, my man. My name is Nathan Smith. I'm the manager of the Sunshine Hotel. Yeah, what can I do for you? I'd like to pay my rent. Good, good. You made the landlord a happy man. This hotel in 1998 probably looks the same as it did in 1928. Like almost all of the flops, the lobby is on the second floor of a narrow flight of stairs. It's just a large room with wooden floors and a couple of chairs. I sit in a cage at the front running the joint. There's only one telephone for the entire hotel, which (laughs) keeps me pretty busy. Sunshine, give me a 10-4. Hey,
4: Eddie,
7: Eddie, Eddie, do me a favor. See if you can get Earl Simpson. Tell Earl it's his mother. Earl, Earl, Earl. Wake him up, wake him up. Throw him out the bed and tell him to come up. Headed to the John, you gotta see me. 35 cents a slice. I'll put it on your tab. You want paper too? Okay. This is a small one. Thank
11: you.
7: Past the lobby, you'll find the living quarters for 125 residents of this hotel. The sunshine is one of the last places in the country where people live in cubicles. Maybe it's a little hard to imagine for those of you living in more affluent circumstances. Picture a long hallway with a series of doors on either side. These are the cubicles. Four by six, no windows. The cubicles are only seven feet high, so there's chicken wire along the top to keep the guys from climbing over into the next room. Really, it's like living in a birdcage.
1: My name's Henry Fogelman, and I live in room 36A. Um, basically, it's like the size of like a jail prison cell. It's um, got a light and bed, mattress and a blanket with um, screen wire on the top. And basically, um, that's about it. It's very
11: tiny. It's so small, you have trouble uh, making the bed.
7: I've been in prisons, jails. I've been upstate, downstate. My cells were five times bigger than my room. So it's not the wall, though. But where else can you find a room in New York for $10 a night? If it wasn't for this hotel, a lot of these guys wouldn't have any place to go. All you have to do is look around, like over there. You see that old guy there with the snow white hair and the guitar? This, uh, this is Eddie. Eddie Barrett. Eddie's been with us about 100
8: years. It's a new day, sunshine, and, the world's still here, we're still here, so that's that's good, hey.
7: Eddie sits all day in a corner of the hotel, looking out the window and playing.
8: I play like Johnny Cash, you know like, That's my inspiration, Johnny Cash. Like. The funny thing about Eddie is that he always
7: plays the same songs over and over and over again.
8: Maybe I might sit down and come up with a new tune in my mind, but by the time I pick up the guitar, I don't forget the tune I had in my mind, see?
7: Eddie used to work as a band boy for Tito Puente, but he had a mental breakdown and ended up at this flop.
8: I met a nice guy in the street, and he knew the barony. And uh, he told me, he said, look, you looking for a hotel? He said, come on with me, I'll show you a hotel. There's a place called Sunshine. It ain't bad. So we went together, and I, that's how we started.
7: That was 30 years ago. And Eddie's still here. That's
8: one of my planes. Somewhere over the
7: Bowery Hey, Nate, Nate, let me lean on you for another smoke, will
4: you? Yeah, light it up for me, will you? My hand's still cold, Nate.
7: I ain't got no feel. Sunshine is the last stop. On the one hand, it's probably as close as you can come to living in hell. 125 dysfunctional guys crammed together in this old hotel. On the other hand, it's... <laughs> It's pretty interesting.
4: There were some hotels
7: on the Bowery. I've had everything here from a priest to a murderer. You wouldn't believe the characters that stay here at the Sunshine. For instance, you see that little elfin white guy walking through the lobby? That happens to be the only deaf mute crack addict on the Oh, uh, This is Donnie He loves this place. This gentleman here, this is our Sue Maven. Yeah, I'm Bob Rush. He sues everybody in town. I think he's suing the Pope now for uh, malfeasance or Father O'Connor. What happened? This is Vinny. This is Vinny here. What happened? happened? Vinny Giganti, cubicle 25A. Vinny has throat cancer and talks with a voice (laughs) box. Yeah, that's Vinny,
11: you know. This is the manager. He's the best guy here, bro. I've been here seven years. This man's like my adopted father. he'll tell you. (laughs)
7: Vinny looks a lot like the famous mob boss, Vincent the Chin Gigante. Rumor has it that the guy's his uncle,
11: although I don't know. I came here because I was addicted to an and I didn't want to bother my family anymore, so I've been here since then. And I will be here until I die, probably.
7: That chirping sound you hear is Vinny's two lovebirds. He spends all day in his cubicle taking care of.
11: This is pretty boy. He's 10 years old. This is little bit. He's five. He's a devil. Yes, you are. They take good care of each other. If it wasn't for these birds, I don't think I'd have made it in this place. These birds have been my life. So many people don't realize you need something, you know, to help you through everything or you're not going to make it. Hey, Pop. Tell me something slick,
1: Anthony.
7: Tell me what's going on. Anthony Coppola, cubicle 4B. Everyone here calls him Fat Anthony because he weighs 425 pounds.
4: Sometimes I knock off a 26-ounce can of Chef Bardi
7: ravioli. That is for five people in the family. i will be eating a cold right out of the can. That is a load of eats. That's a lot of grub there. Anthony's an orphan who came to the Bowery as a teenager about 20 years ago. When I first met Anthony, he was a normal-sized person. But something about this place caused him to eat and eat and eat. Anthony's gotten so large he doesn't fit in his clothes anymore. He just walks around the hotel wrapped in a sheet and almost never leaves the building. Why should I go anywhere?
4: I could, if I want air, I just open up the window. Turn on my fan a little higher and I got air.
7: <laughs> Excuse me. I've been trying to get Anthony to move to a hospital, but he
4: won't go. I don't want to leave, that yet. Too much like home, too much like home. You've been in a place on such a long time. People get to be like family. You don't want
7: to leave. Let, let this young feller in. This is okay, my, uh, my lunch. Right. A little white snack. <laughs> <laughs> That's Bruce, the hotel's runner, delivering two bags of Chinese food to Fat Anthony. That's another part of life in these old hotels. You see, up here in the sunshine, we're totally isolated from the rest of the world, so we create our own little society. Anything you want, you can get from another tenant. We have a loan shark, a drug dealer, a guy who does other tents, laundry for a couple of bucks, a room cleaner, all right, and Bruce, who runs errands for tips. Yeah, that's all for to All day, Bruce sits in the lobby waiting for runs. Bruce! And as soon as somebody calls him, then boom, he hops into action.
5: Okay, T2 sugars, one roll, a two packs Monarch non-filter, large bath of and one pack ginseng, two packs Anderson. There you go.
7: T2
4: sugars, Rolaid. Bruce is a Vietnam
7: vet, and for him, running errands is
4: kind of like going into battle. It takes constant concentration, constant alertness. The main thing is do the steps. Get the order. Remember who gave you the money, and remember how much they gave you.
5: Eleven should cover it, right? Okay. okay. It's,
4: a, it's a work of constant steps, and most of them are mental. Tea, two sugars, one roll, a two packs of Monarch. And walking Four all the time, you've got people constantly distracting you. Distraction's your biggest thing. Right, oh, I need a tea with two sugars. You get to the store. Yeah, tea with two sugars. You get to the store, you got to realize that you've got to constantly be on guard. Constantly be on guard. You're in the hustler's capital of the planet. Every third person you meet is trying to hustle you out of your money. Store clerks included. How much is the rollie? 75. Okay, I gave you a dollar. Now
10: you gave me... I gave you a 50 cent buy and the bill. You're running
4: every kind of uh, person that's out for money in the world out there. And you got other people's money on you. You've got to defend it better than you would your own. Because that's your livelihood. You blow it once, you could ruin your career. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't blow it once. So I can make sure everything's all right. My reputation is my business. I don't blow it. I don't blow it. Thirty-seven thirty-seven okay. okay.
5: Okay. Keep that. Uh,
6: yeah. All
8: day long, I hear my telephone ring.
6: Oh, 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 only oh, giving oh, their
7: oh, advice. Showtime. Showtime at the Apollo. <laughs> Why, here's the phone, business. Sunshine, give me a 10-4. Nah, here, he's not here, he didn't come in yet. All right, Cookie wants $20. Mm. So when the loan shark comes in, I'll tell him, Uh leave $20 for Cookie. Mm.
8: (gasps) Cookie with no teeth? Right, I know Cookie. Yeah,
7: everybody's no teeth around here. (laughs) In fact, my greatest wish uh, will be the day when I can have me a set of choppers, you know what I mean? I just I got the top.
4: All I got is a couple of the My name is Arthur Morrison. I'm 63 now. I came to the Sunshine Hotel in 1960. Wow. At that time, uh, it was bars all over the bar, you know. Two or three bars in every block. And it was like Broadway. It never closed. And the whole bar was filled with nothing but alcoholics. And most of the people I knew that was on the bar is dead now, you know cost of alcohol, and so I'm lucky to be alive. You know, I know that, you know. Survived that, those years, you know, on the bar, you know. It's rough living. Yeah, really rough living.
8: That's
7: Some historical facts about this joint. The Sunshine was opened in 1922 by a guy named Frank Mazzara cubicles were a dime a night. His son, Carl, took over in 1945 and ran the place until a couple of years ago when he sold it to the new owners. Now they're looking to sell.
8: They should make this building landmark status. Yeah, yeah sure, is, yeah. sure is, yeah. But at
1: this place, we'd be in the street. A lot of guys yeah. here. This is the only thing we can afford. This what is a place
7: where wise men do not dwell. This place is the last of the Mohicans. I don't even call it the sunshine, you know what I mean? I got a, I got a name for it, I call it the Bumshine. You know what I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh-uh. Like all of the flops, the sunshine is a men's only establishment. Some of the hotels left on the Bowery are still whites only, but I let everyone in here. All races, all ages, all kinds of stories. We all have one thing in common, we're on our own. We all had homes, but for some reason we left or got thrown out. Take me, for example. I used to work in a bank until one day many years ago I was injured on the job. They fired me, and sometime later my wife left. So I came down to the Bowery, and I've been here ever since.
1: Hey,
7: I'll take Carrie in the back. Yeah, uh, time off and take him in the back. Some of my guys in here are drug addicts or alcoholics. Some are just off Rikers Island. Others just drink too big. I'm going to build me a summer resort. I'm going to have an artificial football field. I'm going to have four basketball courts. I'm going to have a round oval 440 track. Track! Track, Nate, track! Oh, don't you think that's a little overhand I mean, why don't you just do one thing? You got to have direction, Nate. I'm having a summer resort, and
8: this is what it's going to be composed
7: of. Some of my guys here at the Sunshine are working and trying to save a buck. Some are hiding out from the law. Some are dumped
4: here by a psychiatric hospital. Emotionally distraught people find a home in the Sunshine Hotel, and I found home inside me. White is girl color, black is boy color, blue is emotion. My name is Jeffrey Mangonis. I live at the Sunshine Hotel. I'm from a family of multi-billionaires. My mother is multi-billionaire,
7: so my sister. And then there are those of us who end up here because we're dreamers and just don't seem to fit in anywhere else. Like my relief clerk, Vic. Vic spends his days in a corner of the hotel hunched over
5: his daily racing form, depressed. But he wasn't always like that. In my case, I started off like uh, probably so many uh, people, maybe everyone for all I know, with with, uh, sweet dreams, you know. Vic grew up in Ohio with
7: an alcoholic mother and abusive father. He always felt like a misfit, so he buried himself in philosophy and poetry books and then set off for the Bowery in 1960 to live cheaply while undertaking his metaphysical
5: journey. I had some crazy soaring ambitions of figuring out everything. Figuring out everything. I was, uh, well, well, the old impossible quest for truth, you know. Uh, It's like singing from that song, What's It All About, Alfie? Who hasn't wondered what it's all about? Some fierce ambitions along those lines. I don't know, it seemed like I was making some progress. It was intoxicating. And, and uh, after a while, it seemed like it was some crazy pipe dream, as they say, you know. I figure there there've been uh, a lot more substantial heavyweights than me by far <laughs> through history, you know, and they didn't seem to come up with the answers, the big answers, you know. So where did I get off thinking I had a, you know, a chance with that? It seemed like one of those stories, better left untold. <laughs> to me, it seems that way.
7: Uh, uh could I get an ambulance here to the Sunshine Hotel 241 Bowery? One of my tenants is very ill, and, uh, Mr. Marshall, in 5 b 80 years old, senile. Dumped here by his son about two months ago. Uh, he doesn't eat anything but Oreo cookies can't walk to the bathroom, so he goes on the floor. Here you are now. He's down to 80 pounds okay. now and jaundice. Marshall wouldn't last another week here in his condition. I called his son last night, but uh, he doesn't care. Yeah, look at him. He's starving. Why don't you come on outside? He hasn't had any it? food. The whole nine yards. I mean, it happens, in you know, a place like this. You know, they. You know, we're very popular with people being dumped, you know? Keep your
11: hands on your lap. Don't reach out to grab anything, all right? Just lean back,
7: relax, okay? The ambulance crew wheels Mr. Marshall out and Edwin Edwin Porter puts on a gas mask to clean up the room. You say you're gonna throw everything away? Put it in a bag, yeah, put it in a bag, yeah. The cubicle is covered with feces, flies everywhere, and smells like nothing you've ever smelled before.
8: You see a lot of urine all over the floor, a lot of uh, those uh,
10: milk cartons full of, full of urine. It's the worst part, cleaning up rooms like this. Uh,
7: Watford's gone. rosario has gone. Robinson's gone. Dave Rodriguez is gone. Late afternoon at the sunshine, my shift is almost over and I'm sorting through the mail. Rodney, he's deceased. This is the guy that got shot by the maintenance man here in the lobby. Over
11: five bucks. Marcus is gone, scogging. It's like a death house. Okay, seven months I've been here, five guys have died. Okay, and these guys will never leave the building. I mean, months and months at a time. One guy I knew that leave this building for one year. He says, Donald he says I'm gonna die in this place, you know? And um, you know, so it scares, me. it scares me. I can't go no lower than this. I can't. The only thing I could do now is start like a little chicken, start crawling out of the egg. I wake up in the morning and sit in the bed, smoke a cigarette and say to myself, Donald, what the hell are you doing here? What the hell are you doing here? Most of the people
10: just uh, lay on their bed all day in their cubicle watching TV or listening to the radio or staring into space or sleeping and just keep vegetating in these little cells with fluorescent light overhead coming through the chicken wire. And uh, that's their life. That's a guy we'll call Max
7: R. He didn't want his full name used. Cubicle 1L. Max is a 30-year-old Russian immigrant, a skinny kid with a ponytail and glasses. Unlike the other guys you've met, Max is one of my short-term tenants. He left his wife and kids in New Jersey and came here on a heroin
10: binge two months ago. This is my chance to get away where I just don't have to do anything for anyone and just indulge to the maximum without uh, being worried about what anyone's gonna say or how I'm gonna affect others. No one knows that I'm here. It's just a complete getaway. Max is
7: an architect, and even though he's only been here for a short while, he managed to make his cubicle homie, Lit with candles, there are piles of books on the floor,
10: and posters on his wall. There's a painting of uh, Dürer's Saint Jerome, who was a, a hermit. He went to the desert and lived by himself for a very long time to try to Seek knowledge and uh, achieve illumination. In a sense, that's what I'm doing, too, I guess. It's um grotesque, you know, and, and uh, I enjoy it. It's like that movie the cook, the thief, the wife and her lover. The experience is so disgusting, so grotesque in there, so gross, you know, but they make an art out of it. You know? I'm kind of making an art out of experience in this.
7: A couple of days later, Max is arrested at the Sunshine. They crashed him up against the wall several times and handcuffed him, took him out of here. And that means his room is available for anybody who wants to rent. He's just a clean out now. Nothing personal. He's a clean out, you know, and I'm gonna clean him out and sell his room. Maybe tomorrow. I'll probably sell it tomorrow, more than likely. All right, sign here, my friend. Sign and print. One tenant leaves, another checks in, but the hotel never really changes. The sunshine will always be a dark place. Wake up every morning with chicken wire just above you, walls hemming you in on all sides. Alone, it's a stunningly sad place to live. Sometimes at the sunshine, I close my eyes and drift off. I forget where I am just for a second or two. Suddenly I'm not in a flop hotel, but sitting in some family kitchen, drinking a cup of coffee. Then I wake up and I'm back at the hotel. Just like everyone else here, hoping for a break, waiting for that day when I can finally check out of the Sunshine Hotel for good. I hope you enjoyed your stay here while you were here. You were very good. I man. always tell my tenants the same thing when they leave. You're welcome to come back anytime, buddy. Very good. And yeah. hey, good luck, buddy. Good luck. Good, luck. good luck. Yeah, good luck. To Wherever they're going, the next place, I hope yeah. it's not the same as this. I hope it's a little better. But I always tell them that. good luck. Good luck. That's all I say. Okay, Wolfman. Well, Tony, you're going to help them? Yeah. Good, good i'm nathan smith at the sunshine hotel take care my friend yeah god bless
2: buddy
3: That was The Sunshine Hotel, produced by Stacey Abramson and Dave Isay for Sound Portraits Productions. Nathan Smith, the narrator of that story, died in 2002.
4: All the stories I wrote were true because
7: I believed in what I saw. I was traveling west one time at the junction of the state line of Colorado, its arid western one, and the state
5: line of poor Utah, I saw in the clouds huge and massed above the fiery golden desert of even fall, the great image of God with four finger pointed
7: straight at me, through halos and rolls and gold folds that were like the existence of a gleaming spear in his right hand, which saith, Come on, boy, go thou across the ground. Go moan for man. Go moan, go groan.
5: Go groan alone. Go roll your bones alone. Go thou and be little beneath my sight. Go thou and be my new to seed in the pod. Go thou, go thou, die hence. And of this world report you well and truly.
4: Anyway, I wrote the book because we're all gonna die.
3: E Sound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. ReSound's intern is Lily Bowie. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at dojo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agudino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
2: You've been listening to the Third Coast podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening.
0: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.